You are listening to You in the Ring here on CFUV, your weekly roundup of campus news and events. I am your host, Hugo Wong. Uh, Today on the show, we're going to be featuring some highlights from the uh, LNG panel that happened just a little while ago, and we're also going to be talking to uh, the Martlet for news and events that's happening this week. Uh, And we're also going to have a little talk about the U.S. election, (laughs) Uh, that surprising thing, and how that might affect people here in B.C. and in Canada. But first... If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out to You is a new volume of poetry that's being described as love letters to the uncomfortable, the unfathomable, and the unaltered geographies that define our own misshapen understandings of the world. It's the debut book from recent UVic alumnus Adele Barkley. Adele joins me now on the phone from Montreal to talk about her poetry. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, now, you're, you're calling from Montreal, and you've just started a, a tour of the East Coast. Is this the first time that you've toured? Uh, yeah, this is my first book tour. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I mean, I've... I've I used to live out here, and I've been out here several times. But yeah, this feels particularly um, special to to land, and yeah, have a whole bunch of readings lined up and people to meet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're like going into Ontario, but you're also uh, dipping into to Brooklyn, as I understand. Yeah, yeah, I'm reading at Burl's Brooklyn Poetry uh, Bookshop uh, December first, so that'll be really exciting. Um, especially, yeah, I, I started writing the manuscript when I was uh, in Brooklyn for a few months doing research for my dissertation. So it feels very full circle in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the the book is called If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out to You. Where did that title come from? Um, it's, it's actually If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out for You. For you, sorry. I know, there's a lot of words. It's, um, the, there's actually a UVic connection. Um, when I was teaching um, first-year English, um, I had use of this office in Clarehue, and the office had this really creepy piece of children's art posted onto the board, and it was, like, done by a child, and it said, Mommy, if I were in a cage, I'd reach out for you, and there's hmm. a picture of a child in a cage, and that really stuck with me um, as something very odd and creepy and bizarre. So, yeah, I sort of had that phrase in my back pocket, and then... Um, I don't know, I decided to, to title the book that is sort of like an inside joke, but also what I like about it is like, if I were, is in the subjunctive mood, which mm-hmm. is a really rare, like grammatical mood in English. Like it's used a lot more in French. Um, and it's like to denote things that are like impossible or uncertain or desired. It's like if I were, you're like, were kind of denotes this like other space where you're just thinking, um, about possibilities or impossibilities. And for me, I think that's kind of what poetry does. It articulates the impossible, the paradoxical, the uncertain, as well as like our desires. Mm-hmm. Now, you recently finished your PhD at UVic. Um, mm-hmm. And did, did your doctoral dissertation affect the, the subject matter that you chose or any other aspects of your of your resulting work? I don't think so. Like, I think they were very, very separate projects. That being said, I'm sure there are ways like they informed each other because I was working on them at the same time. I was writing the book of poetry, and then I was writing a dissertation on American poetry at the same time. Um, 
So even though those are two completely, like academic writing is a very different practice for me than writing poetry, mm-hmm. but I, I, I'm sure it infiltrated it, but it's maybe in ways like I can't really see because I'm too close to it. But um, yeah, one of my committee members, Ian Higgins, like he, he pointed out some sort of resonances where he's like, okay, because I, I studied poetry and film. And he's like, okay, there's a lot of like, you know, montage and juxtaposition and these kind of like very stark uh, contrasting images, which is kind of similar to a lot of like the avant-garde film, you know, you were, you were researching. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure Rich and HD, you know, have had influences on my voice. Um, mm-hmm. But it's hard for me to parse out. I'm too close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and where do you draw your inspiration from? Um, a lot from people and places. I'm, I'm really, really drawn to, to other people. I'm, I'm endlessly infatuated with humans and, and the relationships we build with each other as well as uh, our relationships with place. And so, yeah, a lot of the poems are about different cities, different places. A lot of them are, are letters. A lot of them address friends. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, I'm very, very um, excited or, or intrigued by, um, yeah, how, how we build worlds with each other through language. Mm-hmm. Um, and if your friends are uh, at least some part of the subject matter, do you find that like they recognize themselves when you show them? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I often address them by name, <laughs> very, <laughs> very baldly. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's always an interesting um, experience. From like, hey, I wrote a poem about you or about us, um, and I mean, for the most part, I think I think they're pleased. Mm-hmm. But it must be interesting sort of when you have another person who uh, has a certain take or an opinion uh, mm-hmm. on a relationship and then yours and how they how they uh, how they're the same or or how they change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess like the nice thing about poetry or at least with these poems, like I'm not necessarily trying to like articulate like a thesis or really like point at a lot of it is just kind of about like the mood and texture. So, yeah, like I have a series of poems to my friend Sarah and. They, they kind of structure the book. Um, and she's like, no, like, that's us. She's like, I, you, you, you get, it can get kind of abstract. And she's like, no, like, that's kind of like the mood, that's the texture of, of our dynamic. So I'm not trying to, like, really, like, kind of define it necessarily, but just sort of, like, pay homage to it or just sort of bring it into relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, are, have you noticed that any, are there any, like, uh, like, sort of common themes in the poetry? Have you seen, uh, like, the, any through lines? Um, yeah, I think, again, I, I'm kind of drawn to a lot of tensions and paradoxes, so I think a lot of the poems maybe grapple with, like, um, yeah, the rural and the urban, the intimate and the public, um, yeah, transcendent, mm-hmm. transcendence and objection, and just trying to kind of hold these, like, disparate things uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you find that there are particular poets that really influence your work? Oh, oh yes. Um, I think uh, Dorothy Lasky, who's an American poet, she's she's very bold. She's very brazen. She's very strange. And um, I don't think I write like her, but just reading her and going to like the really like bold, weird places she goes opened me up in a lot of ways. Um, Eileen Mild, again, another another American 
poet, and she is she's so smart, but she has this very like colloquial uh, diction, mm. even as she's like saying very strange or or very very profound things. Um, yeah, no, there there I definitely read a lot of other poets to to kind of open my voice up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in in talking with writers and in in reading about them, all sort of have their their sort of traditions and superstitions when it comes to the actual mm-hmm. writing process. Um, are there any particular places, like sort of favorite haunts, that you you like to to write in or sort of keep consistent? I, mm, that's a good question. I like to I like to write when I'm traveling, when I'm moving, like when I'm on a train, hmm. um, when I'm on a bus, when I'm you know in some sort of station waiting to get on a train or a bus or a ferry, right, mm-hmm. on the West Coast. Lots, lots of lots of time spent on ferries. They're waiting for them. Um, yeah, so there's is? something about when I'm in movement that kind of, like, shakes things up and then stirs things up, and then I have to, like, resettle it through writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and was there anything that you, that you wanted to uh, uh, to read or... or... <laughs> Yeah, sure. Why don't I read one of, one of the Sarah poems to, to help illuminate? <laughs> yeah, sure. Is, is there anything that would put it into some context? Yeah, yeah. So there's a series of poems um, that structure the book. So I don't have a lot of narrative. Like, my poetry isn't very narrative. Like, it doesn't really, like, tell, like, a very definite story. Like, I guess it tells stories, but in more, like, kind of, like, abstract, swirling ways. Um and but there are there's a series of poems addressed to my friend Sarah, and, and each one starts each section, um, and that kind of it's got a little bit of like travel narrative. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, this one is the one that en- ends the po- uh, ends the collection. It's called Dear Sarah Six. Dear Sarah Six, you're drunk in Bushwick, while cherry blossoms rank and clog the gutters of my East Van neighborhood. I cast spells with emojis, sparkling heart, crystal ball, the cosmos, black cat. I'm worried my magic is all aesthetic, but my grandmother is a medium in Paris, which lets me know I'm half French and a quarter psychic. I can tell when people talk shit and when my lovers cheat, but that's about it. Sometimes I summon my powers to throw a great party, the kind where everyone feels fed and alive. You said you're dreaming of eating tacos in a tortilla factory down the street from where I started writing you these poems a year and a half ago. Sarah, I can't close the circle without you. That was awesome. Thank you. Um, do you know sort of what's next for you? Is it too early to tell since you're in this in this tour? Um, yeah, it, I'm, I'm in a, definitely in like a transitional time. I, I just finished my PhD. I just published this book. Um, what, what's next? I'm, well, I, I recently became the critic in residence for the Canadian Women in Literary Arts, mm-hmm. um, which is an organization that centers feminist and social justice issues and how they relate to... Uh, our, our current literary scene in Canada. Um, so I think I'll be writing, yeah, for that, definitely, I'll be writing a lot of, like, nonfiction essays and book reviews and kind of focusing on sort of feminist literary criticism. So that's kind of what's coming up on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I, I do, I'm 
I am thinking of, you know, other other poems, another collection that's maybe going in a different direction. Um, we'll see. Yeah, but a, a lot is up in the air right now, which mm-hmm. is kind of exciting. And I guess now that you're traveling on tour, like, is that is that an ideal time for you to write now that you're traveling, or do you just have this other thing on your mind? Um, yeah, no, it, it is, it is ideal. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, reuniting with lots of friends and family and folks and that, and I'm visiting, yeah, a lot of different cities. So that, that's pretty much the recipe for writing mm-hmm. for me. That's awesome. So um, we'll see what comes of it. <laughs> we'll have to leave it there. Adele, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Adele Barkley recently finished her PhD at UVic and just published a book of poetry. If I were in a cage, I'd reach out for you is available from Nightwood Editions. Now, in September of this year, uh, the federal government gave conditional approval for a new LNG pipeline to be built across BC. Earlier this month, there was a panel discussion here at UVic. Joining me now are the two chairs uh, and organizers of that event. Good morning. Hello. Good morning, Hugo. Um, Could you introduce yourselves uh, for the folks listening? Yeah, my name is uh, Richard Rickard. I am a third-year geography student at UVic, and I am one of the co-chairs for the Society of Geography Students. And I'm Josh Taz. I'm also a third-year geography student, and I'm also a co-chair of the Society of Geography Students. Um, And uh, for those who who weren't at the panel, could you give us a brief overview of um, what it was called and sort of what... uh, what the overall theme was, I guess. So our, our title of it was um, Pacific uh, Northwest LNG um, New Pipeline, same pipeline. Same. New problems. Yeah, new problems. Um, and what it was, it was a collective of, um, we partnered with the um, Pacific uh, Center of um, Law and Litigation, um, their acronym is CEL, and they're a new uh, group out of the um, law program here at UVic. Um, and they launched, uh, together with Skeena Wild, litigation um, against the federal government um, and the and this pipeline project. So what it was, it was, a, it was a celebration of that litigation, as well as just an information session um, about, you know, people. Uh, so we had um, Greg. Yeah, we were really, uh, really honored with the panelists that we had. We had Greg Knox yeah. and... Uh, Dr. Heidi Stark, as well as Andrew Weaver, the uh, leader of the BC Green Party. And um, uh, just a little background, Greg Knox is the the executive director of uh, Skeena Wild, uh, which is a non-for-profit organization who likes to protect the environment and salmon. And uh, Dr. Stark is a political science professor here at UVic. Mm -hmm. Um, And you brought with us uh, sort of a clip of audio highlights from the event. Um, did you want to introduce the, the first clip at all? It's just about a minute. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, it's just nice to introduce the topics to the people there. Uh, our stance with our guests wasn't exactly pro-pipeline, as you'll hear from this first clip. Uh, this one actually kind of speaks for itself, so why don't you just go ahead and play it. We have a new, relatively new federal government who made some pretty incredible promises, even put their mandate letters out to the public, which outlined the fact that they were going to change their relationship with First Nations and Aboriginal communities. 
thank you very much for the invitation to be here. It's an honor to be here in First People's House. My, my foray into this topic is as somebody who st stood alone in the BC legislature for the first number of years, pointing out the folly of um, walking into the LNG uh, quagmire. Uh, back in 2012, uh, I was saying it then, as I'm saying it now, there is no global market for LNG. Discussions, secondly, are framed around Indigenous participation in the proposed project instead of around questions of Indigenous jurisdiction and territorial rights and responsibility. As you could hear uh, in that last clip, um, our panel primarily focused on three issues. Uh, the environmental review process and the uh, now litigation judicial review, which the ELC is filing to... Uh, try and take them to court, and then also the actual uh, indigenous consultation process, which wasn't very well um, handled so far by our province. And the third topic uh, was climate change and uh, British Columbia's mandate and our commitment to actually try and reduce greenhouse gases by 80% of 2007 levels by 2050. Yeah. So our panelists spoke much to the disconnect between our federal and our provincial policy and now what our current government is trying to um, push this project ahead in partnership, also using it as a platform to uh, work on the Site C Dam to provide power for it. So it's a pretty in important topic today. Yeah, and that was, and, and that was Andrew Weaver um, just discussing what was going on. and. I found it was very, our, our goal for the panel was to have people who could speak from multiple sides. So Andrew was talking um, from the political aspect and we had Dr. Stark, who is the woman speaking afterwards. Uh, she was more of the indigenous um, aspect. And of course, he had kind of more of biological and local aspect from um, Greg Knox. Let's see if we can. Let's see if we can deal with each of those in turn. Um, so from a political standpoint, um, you know, Andrew Weaver has been against it. Obviously, the, the liberal government we have here is uh, very much in favor. What kind of what's pushing the incoming government to to push for the pipeline as strongly as it has been? And uh, has uh, Weaver's opposition had any effect on the process? Well, I think, um, and this is actually start with the second part of your question, is I don't think um, he has had much effect so far, um, just because um, he's speaking from more of the provincial standpoint. Um, and of course, you know, with the, the liberal government, they're very... Uh, they're very pro um, pipeline LNG, so uh, it's it's kind of a tough push at this moment. Um, and with regarding to your um, your first question, I don't know what do you what do you think about that there? I think that uh, our government has been focused uh, during its uh, tenure on a lot of economic issues and job creation. And Andrew Weaver made some really you know well put points that. Honestly, the economic argument for this project doesn't make sense. Um, British Columbia is trying to grow what it sees as a huge potential commodities market in liquid natural gas, but the market is now being inundated with tons of natural gas from other 
uh, countries that don't have the same environmental regulations. Such as Iran, I think, was one of them. As Canada. And how can British Columbia compete uh, with countries that don't have the same environmental oversight? Or, and also uh, the reserves are much, much larger, too. So the, uh, the, the way I understand it, a lot of the the reason why the price has descended how uh, as far as it has is because of the advent of hydraulic fracturing in the United States. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because not everybody makes that connection, actually. Not everyone associates liquid natural gas and fracking for many people. Hmm. Um, one other uh, sort of political question is that the federal government has offered its conditional approval uh, but now it's up to um, the company to actually build it or to decide to build it um, or would it be fair to say that we're in a like a holding pattern right now yeah I, I think that's fair I mean I can't remember the exact number but I think there was a, like a 150 um, points that that they had to meet before they get approval. So it's conditional mm -hmm. approval. Mm -hmm. But um, so I think we are at a standpoint, um, but it's really tough to say when we're going to hear some more information about this. Uh, if we have time to listen to another uh, clip, actually, Greg Knox makes an eloquent point to what you were just saying about how uh, Petronas, the parent company of Pacific Northwest LNG, actually got to hire a bunch of the uh, environmental assessment firms which did the assessment for their project and then they kind of get a handpick you know whichever one is hmm. in their favor the most so okay let's see if I can pull that up additional governance structures in place and there's leaders in place that have been put in place through the traditional governance structures and most of the time those people are completely ignored is we have the proponents paying for, controlling, and manipulating the scientific evidence that's being used to justify the environmental assessment certificates. And it's quite disgusting. What I see this as, I see Pacific Northwest LNG, Petronas's project, is the poster child of how the development process is broken in this country, and it also provides a unique opportunity to fix it. So give us uh, a little bit of background on sort of what we heard there. So that was uh, Greg Knox speaking about the environmental review. And, um, you know, there's five Swimshan First Nations that uh, occupy land and territory right around Prince Rupert, where this proposed plant, uh, liquid natural gas plant, and the adjacent pipeline will be. And uh, they have tried to include themselves in the environmental review. And uh, well you know, Petronas has kind of walked through the paces of it, they've actually really not heard many of their concerns. And much of what they did say didn't end up in the official environmental review. Mm -hmm. um, is this the kind of situation where the where the consultation process kind of like very much has an end goal in mind? And like, they're kind of just you know, Absolutely. Through. I mean, the end goal is the $54 billion price tag on yeah. this project. That's, that's well, the to get this get this on the ground. Right? <laughs> that's where government sees. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of shows. It's disheartening because it shows how the system can be tailor made for the right bidder. Mm -hmm. um, so, what are the kinds of legal avenues that are open for um, for Indigenous nations to, to take between now and now and then? Well, as mentioned previously. Um, 
any kind of support they can. I believe there's, um, I think, three or four different um, litigations being um, uh, filed or have been filed, uh, including one by uh, by Cell, along with Skeena Wild. Um, so any, you know, joining uh, joining forces with those um, organizations, uh, contributing. Um, Donating money to um, to their cause in terms of the you know helping fund that legal issue, um, so that's really the only the, in terms of the um, support behind the the litigation aspect of it. Mm-hmm. If if people are interested though in uh, you know staying informed and getting involved, um, we can uh, provide some information. Maybe you can add to your website uh, if people want to follow up. And also, uh, it's important to remember that there are people protesting this right now on Leilu Island uh, outside of Prince Rupert. And winter's coming, so if uh, you have donations of warm clothing mm-hmm. uh, or monetary means, uh, there are people out there every single day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, like, they are they're uh, exercising their uh, their occupancy rights. Yeah. I guess there are culturally thing. modified trees on Leilu Island, uh, mm-hmm. which have been there for you know, hundreds of years, which would be removed for the plant. Mm. And as we also know, there's a very important salmon habitat just off the Flora Bank, which is uh, some of the best eelgrass in mm-hmm. the entire province for Skeena salmon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one final topic that I want to talk about is kind of the 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 effect that the U.S. election is going to have. And there's a little bit of uncertainty because, um, you know, now that, you know, there's a president-elect Trump, uh, there's going to be uh, sort of renewed interest in resource extraction projects in the U.S. He's going to presumably open up a lot more land for that. Uh, how is that going to affect like the, the B.C. side of things? Uh, it's really tough to say. Um, I know going into the election, the U.S. election, there was, um, for instance, issue with the softwood lumber, the trade between that. Um but with regards to this, I don't know if there's going to be much of um, an effect um, just because of, I think this this is something that kind of stems outside of the U.S.-Canada uh, relations, I believe. It is very disconcerting, though, uh, yes. that Donald Trump's platform would uh, renege on the agreements made in Paris and Copenhagen. And uh, it's it, if they set a precedence for other countries uh, that are already developed to, you know, kind of flaunt around our environmental goals and uh, and platforms, then it, it won't be hard for other countries to follow suit. And I think it's really great now that uh, we're looking at maybe defining our policies as being, once again, not American. Sounds good. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Hugo. Oh, and if people do want to find out more, where do they go? Um, well, they can find us on Facebook, um, Society of Geography Students. Um, and also, just to add, we will be have, uh, we have actually filmed this, and it will be airing on Shaw TV within the next couple weeks. So if you, um, again, like us on Facebook, uh, that's Society of Geography Students, and the acronym is SOGS, S-O-G-S. You can find out more information there, um, including contact information for either of us. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a nice day. 
and now I'm pleased to be joined uh, by two folks from the Martlet staff writer Cormac O'Brien and editor-in-chief Miles Sauer. Good morning, all. Hey, Hugo. Thanks for having us. Um, so, uh, one of the first things uh, that you're covering this week is a possible reading break extension? Yeah. Maybe so, not? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I can talk about that. Um we were at the Senate meeting on November 4th, I think it was, and the Senate Committee on Agenda and Governance um, brought a little update on a proposal to extend the fall reading break extension, so it took a full week. Um, this proposal actually originally came to the Senate a year ago, I think, um, and they've been kind of working on it on and off since then. But the thing that they brought forward at this meeting was that they can't find a way to expand the reading break within the current um, like parameters of the school year, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. quite have the wording right there, but basically like they can't add another two days without kind of shifting how the rest of the semester is arranged. And so one of the things, one of the options that they're considering and that they were looking for input from the Senate on was looking at the possibility of Sunday exams hmm. because adding uh, two days of Sunday exams would allow for them to then take away like two days of classes because you could like bump the semester back a couple days, mm-hmm. basically. So yeah, and so they basically got they the this committee was told yeah like look into that possibility we can see if that works. So consultations are kind of going to start going. Um. So it hasn't been decided yet. They're still kind of unsure about. It's a very we're very unsure about this kind of thing. They the committee came to the Senate kind of like, yeah, we're thinking Sunday exams might be the way to do it, but we don't know what should we do. And the Senate, other senators said, well, if the possibility is there, like, yeah, obviously, like, look at it. And a few people said, like, consult with students, consult with profs and see what they want, because there are some other options that they looked at, too, which included um, putting the reading break uh, along with, like, Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So having the fall reading break take place in October instead. Um, But one of the fears that, I guess, came out of some consultations on that uh, possibility were that if students who are new... And they're super stressed out after that first month of class and they go back for a full week in October. Uh, some were concerned that students might not want to come back. Whoa. Whereas if you have the reading break two months in and they're kind of more invested, I guess, then they may they may want to come back. I don't know. It's kind of odd. Um, to me, that sounds a little bit like maybe instead of worrying about you know, the length of time that students will be away in which they won't want to return, maybe worry about reasons why students wouldn't want to return in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) One of the others, another senator said, like, why not bring counseling services in on these consultations and see, like, what the best option is there? Um, But somebody also said, if the whole spirit of expanding reading break is to kind of alleviate the burden on students who are stressed out at that time of year, big time, would adding... Sunday exams kind of go against the spirit of that. So that was one question that came up. And there's so many other like implications and things that would need to be considered if Sunday exams got added, like labor kind of things. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you're adding like a whole other day of work for faculty and invigilators and that kind of thing. Uh, also religious exemptions, like there right. would be a lot more about that. I guess there's been like an uptick in uh, special exemptions for for students, like for exams. And they there was some concern that that might be more of an issue if there are exams on Sundays. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, let's move on to the, the UVSS and sort of the, the fight the fees issue. Um, so are you saying that there's still been like continuing controversy about the UVSS choosing not to go into that? Yeah. Well, there was a little bit. I remember the last time you and I talked, it was before the rally took place. Um, since then the rally happened, it was pretty good turnout. There's about 80 or so students, but there was some vocal, you know, UVSS isn't here, and that's their choice, but we're, we don't agree with it. And there was some some discussion on social media where some people were kind of choked that the UVSS didn't show up. Um, and so we dug into that a little bit. And, yeah, from what I've kind of gathered, it really just comes down to the fact that this was a Canadian Federation of Students event and some of the directors didn't really feel like it was appropriate for the UVSS to support that when the CFS had sued us in the past. Mm-hmm. So, And the, uh, UVic wasn't the only uh, student society that elected not to participate, is that right? Yeah, I found out after the fact that Camosun College, their student society, had actually chosen to do the same thing. Um, they're still members of the CFS, though, and kind of... I mean, this just gets into like this whole body of student politics that is just there's so many different parties involved. It's kind of hard to untangle. But yeah, UVic, Camosun, both student societies opted not to and be involved with that. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Cormac, um, I wanted to bring you in today because of like what's been going on in in the U.S. And you know, we were talking a little bit um, before the U.S. election, um, you know, about the chances of a Trump victory, and you had uh, lived through something like this before. You want to sort of get into that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's kind of funny. I didn't really. I think I was. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to claim that I was ahead of the curve. I, you know, I thought Trump was as much of a joke as most people did when he started running in the primaries and even to an extent in the general election. Uh, our business manager, Alex Coates, was kind of the first person that I interacted with that said he's going to win, you know, and she was pretty certain early on that Trump was going to win. And I, you know, I didn't really take it very seriously, as most didn't. Uh, and then Brexit happened. I've got a lot of family in England. I grew up there uh, and then moved here about 10 years ago. So I saw a lot on social media and read a lot in the news about Brexit. And to me, the fact that the Leave campaign won there kind of alerted me to the fact that this is a real possibility in, in America as well. And and where, you know, I was still hoping that Hillary Clinton would win. Um, and I still thought she she could. I was I think I was a little more open to the possibility of a Trump presidency due to the fact that we'd seen a really similar thing happen in England. Uh, You know, a lot of people after this election said, you know, well, how could our polls have been so misleading? And the same thing was said in England over Brexit. The polls right up until the last minute were saying that the stay campaign was going to win. And then, you know, you know, shock horror, it didn't. Uh, And a similar kind of rhetoric was used, this kind of divisive, you know, isolationist Uh, rhetoric was used in England and the same thing happened in America. And again, people didn't think it would work and it did. So yeah, to me, it was, it was kind of less of a shock and I was a little more surprised that 
fewer people also didn't think it was going to be a shock. I, I thought we might have seen so many similarities in the world, not even just last year, but, you know, in history, that we wouldn't be as surprised as we are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some uh, students who are uh, coming in from Canada to the U.S., uh, and they're, like, sort of thinking about, like, what's what their chances are going to be, like, do you do you think it's too early to see like if people from the U.S. are going to be like coming into Canada? Oh man, I don't know. I mean, we saw obviously the the crash in immigration. Um, we I think Justin Trudeau's lifted visas on Mexican immigration, isn't that right? So we might be seeing more of that. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's definitely a possibility. But again, I would caution those people if if they're listening to CFUV right now that uh, we saw it happen in England, we saw it happen in America. It can happen in Canada too. I mean, Canada is not some kind of magical land exempt from, you know, divisive isolationist rhetoric. We see it with politicians like Kelly Leach, who's on the front cover of McLean's. Like, this is this is not something that's just happening in a few countries. This is a global problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, guys, uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks. And that's it for us at You in the Ring. We've got uh, Katie Sage up next with In Rainbows, so stay tuned for that. I'm going to leave you uh, with a track by Tobacco. It's called Gods in Heat. Have a good Tuesday, everyone.